All right. I debated which to do for this hour, but we're just going to continue on with Long Gospel since that's what we did in the last hour. The last hour we covered the Asiander controversy and church history. Uh, I'm not going to go back and repeat everything about that, but you, well, well, I've been saying this the entire series. I've, I've kind of begged, pleaded for everyone to listen to everything that we've done. Everything's online. Remember, this is now, uh, this is, seven, this is se the 72nd message in our series on understanding law and gospel. Um, so the last one was 71. Um, now the ones that are numbered, uh, this will be part 55. Um, for the ones that are numbered, the ones that are numbered, most of those happened here in the church. The ones that are not numbered are, are usually uh, other messages to, to add to what we've done. I think long gospel, baptism, part one and part two, those were done here. So I think a good portion of everything, I'm looking at everything in the series. I think most of everything here happened here, but there's uh, some that did not. And all I can say is... Um, all of it is essential and important. And uh, so, but yeah, we, we, there's a lot we could say there, but that's okay. All right, so here we go. We are, go we are in thesis number 10. That's what we're going to review. We're not going to uh, deal with everything with us because if I even try to review the Oceander controversy, it will take 45 minutes to review it. All right, so thesis number 10. I'm going to read it as in the book. Uh, Sarah has it written down, uh, our kind of our corrected version. Also, remember the PDF file has the, what we call our own kind of versions of these theses because when we went through them uh, originally, we kind of rewrote some of them. But right now we're dealing with this one because it's very frustrating. Thesis number 10 is very frustrating in the book because after, doing, after spending nine theses really showing us the distinction between law and gospel and trying to make it very clear the merging of these two is dangerous without fail... The book falls right back into the trap that Christians have been falling into for 2,000 years, and we talked about it in the Osiander controversy, is that Christians have a hard time dealing with the fact that Christians still sin. So there's always these supposed solutions to explain it. You lost your salvation, you were never saved, you have supposedly some power to stop it, but for some reason you don't. All of the nonsense that Christians come up with, and without fail, it destroys the idea that we are saved by an imputed righteousness. So I stated it this morning, and I know when you say it, everyone has, goes crazy and passes out, out of shock. But let me make it very clear. We are saved by an imputed righteousness. And what does that imputed righteousness do to us internally? Nothing. Nothing. You're the same person internally after salvation that you were before salvation, the difference is a righteousness has been imputed to you. And I know someone's going to quote, but in Christ, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. If that's true practically, then what would be the only logical conclusion one could derive from that? That the sinful nature is gone. If the sinful nature is still present, then not everything has become new, has it? Everyone should say amen. So that means we can't understand that verse to be talking about what is true of us practically. How is that true? Positionally, because in Christ, what am I? A new creature, the oldest passed away. Why? Because I stand 
perfectly righteous in Christ. In Christ, what am I? Righteous? Obedient? Perfect. Holy. What am I in practice? Not so good. And not only that, I, I want to stress this. If you believe that Christ paid for all your sins, I can't look to someone's sins and say, well, they can't be saved because they're committing those sins. Why? Because they supposedly have all been paid for. How can a paid for sin be used to judge someone's salvation? Amen? Okay, this is very important. So the book backtracks and kind of falls into trying to explain this. And their way of explaining it is a little bit confusing. Now, we've already uncovered, this is like part three, part four in this thesis. So I want to try to go quickly. And I'm just going to have to read some of this fast. And you're just going to have to try to, if, if, you, if, if you're behind, hopefully I can get you caught up to some level. But we want to finish this thesis today. All right, everybody ready? I'm going to read the thesis. The word of God is not rightly divided. When the preacher describes faith, in a manner, as if the mere inert acceptance of truths, even while a person is living in mortal sins, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. According to the book, what are they worried about? That someone would say, they believe and yet live in, remember the words they use, mortal sins, which is already a problem, yes, all right, because we know the game Christians play, correct? We all know that. We talked about this in Sunday school. If, if you don't know the game Christians play, I, I'm telling you, I'm so sick of the Christian game. It, it, at times, I want to throw it all out because it drives me crazy. We know how it works, right? Someone on this side of the church, well, there's only one person, Mary, okay? okay. Mary gets, gets used today because she's on this side of the church, all right? Mary, uh, say, let's say she struggles with with gossip and slander and being slothful and conceited and arrogant and prideful and self-righteous and condemns others and those kinds of issues. And she just has these problems on and on and on and on and on through her Christian life. Will anyone call into question her salvation? No. No. Will not. If anyone on this side of the church gets caught in any kind of sexual sin and starts struggling with that sexual sin and it happens over and over and over, almost instantaneously, what will everyone say? Possibly not saved. Does, it, does anyone see that, how utterly foolish that is? Makes no sense. In fact, it's straight up Catholicism. That what, that's what we, we'll put it this way. If we are guilty of one point of the law, we're guilty of all. Even if people don't want to say all sin is equal, we have to admit, just, if I break one point of the law, I'm guilty of all of it, and we're all breaking one point of the law in some way, shape, or form. How do I know? Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Anybody here guilty? All right, then you're guilty of all of it. There you go. But Christians struggle with this, and I understand the struggle. What, what, what do we really wish would happen? That we would get saved and what? We'd be perfect. But I'm just, I'm just telling you, just, I mean, again, I, I'll just you go, go to the Roy's report and, and just read those reports every day about what's happening in churches. Rape, fighting, suing, 
I mean, child molestation, horrible, horrible things are happening in churches continually. And nobody likes to hear those stories. They always think, oh, they're just trying to make us look bad. No, we make ourselves look bad because we are still sinners. And I know we want to pretend otherwise, but it's just a foolish game to play that way. All right, so the book is going to fall into this trap, all right? The second part of this thesis is, or as if faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. Now, they try to, they try to correct the second, in the second part. The first part, they're like, hey, you can't just say you believe and live any way you want. But on the second part, they say, but, 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 you're not saved because you do these things. But if you don't do these things, which, remember this, it's just circular reasoning, right? It makes no sense. And it's, isn't it weird, if you've ever had to try to have this discussion with people, like, they can't see how they're just talking in circles. And it's, it's just, I, it's, I don't know, I get exhausted. I'm just like, never mind, just whatever. Believe whatever you want. Just leave me alone. Because, because it's just, you're just going in circles. And they walk away going, see, I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, without works. And I know that if you don't have those works, you're not saved. But you don't need those works in order to be saved. But if you don't have those works, you're not saved. You're like, never mind. Just go sit in the corner and talk to yourself. Because it's, it's, just, because it's just maddening. Right? And they don't, can't realize it. But I, you hear this constantly in churches. So let's go through this quickly. Everybody hold on. We're going to move fast, all right? Uh, Sarah, if I get past uh, something that we haven't covered, just tell me uh, so that I'll slow down because I'm just going to go fast. Here we go. Now, immediately, they're going to quote Luther. Luther taught that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces love spontaneously and is fruitful in good works. And immediately we have a problem, right? Because supposedly, what is Luther saying? Hey, you're not saved unless... Uh, spontaneous love and fruitful and good works. And that, that ever, most every Christian you would read that to would say what? Amen. But th- there's a million problems with that. All right? That now, but immediately they got to back up. That does not mean that faith saves on account of the love which springs from it, but that faith which the Holy Spirit creates and which cannot but do good works justifies because it clings to the gracious, prom- the gracious promises of Christ because it lay, lay holds of Christ. You see how they, they want to backtrack. Hey, no, no, you, you've got to, uh, your faith has to do this, but you're not saved because it does this, but because you have faith, it will do this. But if you don't do it, it's just so like, I don't know how people can't see how this doesn't work. And I, I guess it makes me mad because I talk that same way for a good portion of my Christian life. Right, I mean, anybody is saved, right? If they were honest, right? Um, it says, it is active in good works because it is genuine faith. So once again, it is active in good works because it is genuine faith. Meaning that your faith is not genuine unless it does good works. And what should be the question all of you should ask? How much is enough? And why is it that the people in Matthew 7, who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do A, B, C, D, E? Why wasn't that... Enough, because if that wasn't enough, remember what things they were doing, casting out demons, doing signs and wonders, if I haven't pulled any of that off, so if theirs wasn't good enough, 
How is mine good enough? Right? I, I think we can all agree, you see, that, that this is where this is very frustrating. The believer need not, now listen, the believer need not at all be exhorted to do good works. Faith does them automatically. See, you don't have to even be exhorted. I don't even have to challenge you. I don't even have to say, you need to read your Bible. I don't even have to say, love your, you just do it. It, wouldn't that be great if that was true? David didn't need to be exhorted, hey, don't take that man's wife and kill him. Because automatically he would never take that person's wife and kill him. Never. Oh, wait. He kind of did that, didn't he? And if we don't have to be exhorted, then why do we have all the exhortations in Scripture <laughs> to do good? Right? Whenever Paul wrote to the churches, what was he always constantly doing them? Exhorting them. So why, why, why would we even need sermons? Hey, you're saved, Bobby. You don't need me. Because you're just going to do good. By my, I don't, you know. We would just come to church and everybody could report how good you were this week. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be fun? Hey, Emma, tell us how good you've been this week. All right, that's, that's pretty good. Hey, Bobby, you've gotta, you, gotta, you, gotta, you do better because it's automatic, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, do you see how utterly ridiculous that statement is? It doesn't work that way. The believer engages in good works, not from a sense of duty and return for the forgiveness of the sins, but chiefly because he cannot but help doing them. You just can't stop yourself. You're like, man, I don't want to do good this week. I don't. Oh, man, I did good again. I just don't know what's wrong with me. I just keep doing good. It's, it has to be that imputed righteousness. No, no. It can't be the imputed righteousness, can it? Because imputed righteousness doesn't do anything for me inside. And I know Christians will lose their mind when I hear me say that. It is altogether impossible that genuine faith should not break forth from the believer's heart in works of love. It is impossible. You got genuine faith, it's just boom. All this good is just going to just explode inside of you. It's going to explode. Just good works, good works, good works. Right? It's like, you know, that Starburst commercial when you take the bite. Woo. Well, but the reality is, even, you see how subjective it is, because even if we say it's true to some level, we have to try to, we don't know the quality or quantity of it. And you're right, even when we do good, so many times it's tainted with what? Our own selfish motives and desires. Our own, our own selfish motives and desires. Because a lot of times we do good, we love for, for a selfish reason. I say that all the time about love. So much of what we say, I love you, means I love you because of what I get from you. That person stops giving you that. Isn't it amazing how quickly that love ends? If they hurt you, talk, all of a sudden you're like, I'm out of here. Uh, amen? Okay, I mean, I think it's very true, right? Uh, we look at Galatians 5, 6 really quick. We did talk about this one. Galatians 5, 6. We've got to go quickly. Got to go quickly. Obviously, I'm not going to make it past this thesis, but that's okay. I am going to finish this one way or the other, okay? 
And I just, it's just so frustrating because I, everyone struggles with what this book is talking about. And we all struggle with this. Now, it's, uh, they quote Galatians 5, 6, and we, we were a little perplexed by why, why, but let's read it again. Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Now, what do they want to focus on? Faith worketh by love. All right, that's what they want to focus on. Here's what they say. The ineffectiveness of a faith that fails to work by love is not due to a lack of love, but to the fact that it is not real, honest faith. Love must not be added to faith, but grow out of it. A fruitful tree does not produce fruit by somebody's order, but because while there is vitality in it, and it is not dried up, it must produce fruit spontaneously. Faith is such a tree, it proves its vitality by bearing fruit. So because it talks about working, how does the phrase used in Galatians 5, 6? What is the phrase there? Yeah, faith works from love, okay? Because of that, they've now created this whole idea that, hey, unless your faith is working and doing this, then it's not real faith. And it's like, well, how do you measure that, right? And I, and I don't know if you can just take that one little phrase and build this whole idea off of it, right? I, I just don't think so. Agreed? Okay, right, so I, I just want to make sure. They, they go on to say, they look at Acts 15, 9. Acts 15, 9. And I would like to go back and do, do some more work on some of these scriptures, but for now, we're just going to have to press on. Just, you can't build an entire doctrine off, off that one little phrase. Let's just say that, okay? Agreed? Right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways of possibly looking at it. I, I, don't, I don't think it's as simple as just saying, hey, your faith doesn't do this. It's not real. Okay, well, man, like Bobby said, then nobody, basically we have to conclude nobody is saved. Acts 15, 9, what do we read here? And put no difference between, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. All right, now, here we go. This is what they're going to claim again. Please note, he just takes, he's grabbing verses that just have these little phrases in it, right? Just taking these little phrases and then building his whole idea based off these little phrases. Right? Now, here's what he's going to say. A person who claims to have a firm faith, which he will never abandon, but still has an impure heart, must be told that he is in great darkness. So if you have faith and you have an impure heart, you're lost. Now, does anybody see a problem with that? Because what would, this, what would this be claiming? You have a perfect heart. Meaning the eradication of sin. Meaning you no longer have a sin nature. So then what would be the question? Why do we then sin? If you have a pure heart, why are you sinning? Because we're lost, exactly. According to the book, it's because we're lost. Isn't it crazy that after nine theses, this is where he, 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 we end up right back to where? Where the church is always at. Like nine theses trying to move us away from the way everyone thinks. And then thesis 10, we go right back to it. Because it's inevitable that Christians can't 
We cannot accept sin in the life of a believer. It's like we won't acknowledge it. We, we don't want to believe it's there. And I don't know why we can't just acknowledge it. They go on to say, and guess what? If this was taught uh, even anywhere close to the way it, this sounds in any Lutheran church, then all the Lutherans I've ever known are all going to hell. Including me when I was a Lutheran. Because, I'm, I mean, give me a break. I mean, they all had impure hearts. There was sin in those churches. There was nobody there perfect. Remember, that caused me to question, like, well, the baptism here obviously doesn't work. But forget the baptism. This is, just, this is just a crazy statement. You may regard all the doctrines that are presented in the Lutheran church as true, but if your heart is still in its old condition, filled with the love of sin, if you still act contrary to your conscience... Your whole faith is a mere sham. I want you to hear that again. If your heart is still in its old condition, filled with the love of sin, if you still act contrary to your conscience, your whole faith is a mere sham. (laughs) Do you understand how utterly ridiculous that is? What is the condition of our heart after we are saved? I want everyone here to say it out loud. What is the condition of your heart after you're saved? The same as it was before. I know if you go tell anybody who goes to another church that we just said that, they will say this church is heretical and that we are wrong. And that's okay. Because you know what I, you know, what I know while they're saying that? they have the exact same heart that they had before they were saved. And guess what? When they sit around talking about me or talking about you and gossip and slandering over lunch about how messed up we are or how stupid we are, and they show their arrogance and their their judgmental spirit and their self-righteous spirit, what are they demonstrating? Their old heart. I, I just find it funny, you know? They may never have committed the sins I've committed, but there's plenty of people who sit around and gossip and slander and talk about me. So guess what? They have the same heart I had, just committing a different kind of sin. But their sin is more righteous than my sin. Well, so be it. You, you, you just act like you're godly. That's fine. I don't care. I really, I'm, literally, I don't care anymore. But I know that what I'm presenting here is a radical concept. I know it is. But I am convinced after all of these years of being a Christian that I'm sorry, we have the same heart with the same struggles. Now, you say, well, oh, do you believe that there's any change? Well, I know the one change I can, we can be dogmatic on is this, that we've changed our mind, right? Because Christianity involves repenting. And what is repenting fundamentally? A change of mind. What have we changed our minds about? God, salvation, sin, truth, morality. We have changed our mind about that. Right? Do we, and because we've changed our mind, we may want to try to follow it. Yes? There may be even a want to there that wasn't there before. I will even acknowledge that there's a new want to. But you know what that want to leads me to? that I find myself doing the things I don't want to do 
and not doing the things? I wonder why. Because what didn't go away? The sinful heart. The sinful nature. It doesn't go away. We don't have any kids here. We can be, we can be very blunt. If you're 17 and you're not a Christian and you have all of this lust and desire for sexual relationships and you're, you may be having problems, you're, you're looking at something you're not supposed to or having for, committing fornication and then all of a sudden you get saved, guess what happens now that you're saved? You may think those things are wrong, but guess what's going to happen? You're still going to want to do those things. You're still going to struggle with doing those things. And guess what? You may end up doing those things. And I, I don't know why. Like to, to say that feels like we're committing some sin. But it's just true. And, and, I, and I, I don't know if you've been watching lately the controversy about Andy Stanley and, oh, my goodness. I've already addressed it once, but it, I can't keep up with all the articles. But it brings up the same old fight in the evangelical church that I will never comprehend and I will never understand. And I don't want to even bring it up right now because it's so controversial, but it deals with this subject perfectly. And you know what? If, you'd ha- if you're not familiar with the Andy Stanley controversy, he made some comments in regards to homosexuality that, you know, everyone flipped out, losing their minds, and, you know, and it just drives me crazy. But let me make it very clear. This is very true. If someone has same-sex attraction and they get saved, does that same-sex attraction go away? Probably not. Because guess what? Sexual attraction, sexual desire, no matter what people want to say, that, that is beyond sometimes our understanding to why. Right? You, people have a sexual pre- desire or likes or preferences that you didn't just wake up one day and go, that's what I like. Right? Nobody had to tell. I didn't choose to like girls. It was just happened, right? So we have this weird thing in the evangelical world that for the for heterosexual... You, man, we can have these desires and struggles and lust and we can have these problems and we get saved and we can still have these desires and these struggles and lust. Now, some may say if, you, if it shows up too much, then you're probably never saved. But they, there's, there's an acceptance for some of it, right? But someone who's same-sex, what does the church demand in many cases? Utter, complete, 1,000% change. So now, all of a sudden, now I'm going to like a boy or like a girl. And how many times in the church has someone gotten saved, claimed that now they're no longer, they're no longer gay, everything is wonderful, everything's great, and then 10, 15 years later, they end up leaving their husband or wife, and they end up with a same-sex partner anyway. Great example, Ray, Ray Bolts, very famous Christian singer. Everybody loved Ray Bolts. was on every Christian radio station. Many conservative churches sang his songs. Oh, guess what? He came out as being... Oh, no. Jennifer Knapp came out being... I can go on and on and on in Christian music where it's happened. 
Because in many cases, what are they doing? Uh, okay, I'm not this anymore. I'm not this anymore. I'm not this. That desire is gone. It's gone. It's not there because I've been changed. I'm a new creature in Christ. It's not there. I, I... And they fight, 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 fight to only realize that it's there. Now, am I saying that someone who becomes a Christian should engage in said behavior? Am I saying that? No, because guess what? They shouldn't be allowed to engage in the behavior if I'm not only allowed to engage in all the behavior that I want to be engaged in. If it's a sin, then, we, then our job is to do what? To avoid it. Does, that doesn't mean the desire for the sin goes away. Does your desire for sin go away when you became saved? It, no, you still desire sin because that's why you continue to sin. And I know that it's sad that you can't even say that among your fellow Christians because they will lose their minds and think you're, you're, that you're the heretic. And it's like, what? but they can't acknowledge that you still don't struggle with sin? Well, yeah, but it's different. Oh, it's different because it's not my sin. See, my sin I can continue to struggle with. Your sin, your sin you better change. See how unfair that is? All right, so now I've walked into that controversy, right? But again, what did he say? If your heart is still in its old condition, filled with the love of sin, if you still act contrary to your conscience, your whole faith is a mere sham. Yours is not the faith of which the Holy Spirit speaks when he uses the word faith in the scripture. For the faith, the genuine article, purifies the heart. If your faith is real, it will purify your heart. No. You know, I would say there's none. I, put it this way. Has any of you have a pure heart? Now someone said, but it's not that. And you know how they will always, how would they do this if we confronted them, Bobby? But it's not that it will be perfect. Right, I, I don't, it's like, but it's getting more and more pure. It's like, oh man, it's just so, it, we know the game. We've watched this game play out too many times. Go to John five forty four real quick. We had to really hurry. John five forty four. someone read it uh, out loud and tell me who's going to read it so I can get close enough with the microphone so people online can hear us. John 5.44, who's going to read it? John 5.44. You're going to read it, Emma? Okay, read it in the NIV. Let's go. How can you believe and be such glory from one another but do not keep the glory that comes from the other one? Okay. Right, so this seeming to be implying that if we truly are saved, we will seek God's glory. Right? That seems, I think, how does the uh, King James read? John 5.44. Okay, you see where this, they're going to take this. Hey, if you're truly saved, you'll seek God's honor. Well, I wish that was true, wouldn't it? Right. They say this, an awful verdict is pronounced in these words by the Savior on those who seek honor for men. They have no faith. It is one of the fruits of faith that from the moment it begins to grow up in the heart, it gives all honor to God alone. If you're truly saved, you'll only give glory to God alone. Give me a break. Come on now. 
That is just not true. Should we give God all the glory and honor? Amen. Should we strive to do that? Should we be convicted when we don't do it? Are we going to do that even probably 10% of the time? No, because we always still what? Glory for ourselves. Okay. All right. We are all haughty, proud, and ambitious and this noxious vice can be driven from our hearts only by the Holy Ghost. See, no, see what happens? You get saved, and what happens? It's going to drive pride and ambition out of you. But that's not the case. Pride continues to remain, does it not? Why does it continue to remain? Sinful nature. And what, remember, how do I define sin? I say it all the time. Everybody in this church should know it by now. I know people online are probably typing it in the comments. Sin is what? The exaltation of the I. Sin is the exaltation of the I, of self. What's the middle letter of sin? I. It's the exaltation of the I. It's a little play on words. It's an easy way to remember it. Sin is the exaltation of self. And it's the exaltation of self above whom? First God, and then others. Therefore, it's self-seeking. It wants its own pleasure. It wants its own way. It wants its own desire, which is true of... And you know it's true in the church. That's why there's constant church splits and fights and disagreements and backbiting and gossip and slander and hatred, and we can't get along about anything. But it's true in every family as well. But it's definitely true in the church. Because we all have the I very much present, yes? The I is us. I wish it would drive it out. But we never... Now, now now, remember, what word were you waiting for? But. What word is that right there, Bobby? That's but. But. But we never become rid of it entirely. <laughs> An evil root remains in the heart. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious how this works? All of this, your faith is not real. If you do this and that, your faith, it's a sham. But, well, I mean, we're never going to get rid of it entirely. Does everyone see how utterly, I know it's hard because we've all thought this way, right? We've all talked this way in our Christian life. But once you step back and look at it, don't you realize how utterly foolish we sound? And it's just, why can we not bring ourselves, what is it inside of us that just cannot, I don't know what it is. But we never become rid of it entirely. An evil root remains in the heart. Now, wait a minute. I thought he said we got a new heart. Pure heart. The old heart. Remember he says that we have a, the old heart is gone. And if you still have the old heart, you're not saved. Now he says that there's evil remaining in the heart. How can evil remain in a new heart? It doesn't fill the heart. But it's just ridiculous. It's, 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 oh. A believer, when noticing this thing in himself, abominates it, reprobates himself, feels ashamed of himself, and asks God to deliver him from these abominable notions of pride. Well, I do agree that we should feel guilty about it. 
I do, should feel, I do feel that we should ask God to deliver us from it, but I know what the answer is going to be. Obviously, it's going to be a no, because if the only way to deliver me from these sins, God would have to do what? It would have, well, we either die, because that would be glorification, or you'd have to remove sin entirely. Does God remove sin from you? I know, look, this is the most complicated this is one of the most complicated parts of Christianity that people don't like to deal with. I think there's lots of them, but this is a, a hard one to wrap your mind around, right? Would we say God wants us to be holy? Yes. Can we pray that God would make us holy? Will God make us holy? <laughs> he will ultimately. But is that not, does that not rob, like, cause part of your brain to fall out the side of your head? Because I'm like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. God wants me holy. So that means I'm praying according to his will. But I'm still going to sin. So somehow, what do we have to, what's the, what's the only conclusion we can draw from this? And I know nobody wants to admit this. Sin is somehow a part of the plan. And I don't like, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's justified. Please do not misinterpret what I'm saying. But clearly, God could, God could get rid of it immediately, could he not? I mean, all-powerful. He could eradicate the old nature just like that. In fact, he could have done what? Stop it from being passed on. There was no requirement that, hey, mommy sinner, daddy sinner will produce baby sinner. He could have said, no, the sin won't be passed on. I mean, that's what Pelagius taught, right? Pelagius taught that it wasn't passed on. Oh, well, I don't know where Pelagius was living, because obviously, you know, oh, oh, in a monastery, that's the only that's probably his, that was his problem. Because obviously, if he would have been in the real world, he would have realized, if he would have just been honest for himself, with himself for five seconds, okay, all right. Yeah, obviously he didn't have children, right? Okay, here, here we go. We're going to go quickly. The Savior's words are in the form of a rhetorical question and signify you cannot believe for seeking honor from men and believing are simply incompatible. So see, now, now he's going to go back the other direction. Hey, what Jesus is saying in John 5, 44, is that you cannot believe and seek honor from men because that's incomp incompatible. But the reality is we seek honor from men all the time. All the time. I mean, let's just be honest. It's a lie to think that pastors don't preach seeking honor and, and some kind of acknowledgement from people. It would be a lie. Let me put it this way. Any path, and, and I'm just going to say, and I, and I know I'm going to get myself in trouble. You know how I feel about the Christian conference industrial complex. I think it's insane that, in, that any Christian in their right mind would think they should pay $50 to hear someone preach. I do not, I will never understand that in a million years. It's like having, you know, a bouncer at the door and Mary walks up and going, hey, it's, today is a $25 cover charge to get in. If we did that and took a video of it, people would, in fact, we should do a video. We'd go viral in about five seconds, right? We'll get, we'll get some person big, put them at the back door. We'll have Emma walk up and she gets, no, 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 it's $25 to get in this morning. And, and, and people would think, well, and we'll do it like it's legit. Everybody would be like, that church is horrible that's a that's a sin and then they'll be you know they'll, they'll send the news cameras out i'm like it happened and then i'll just say why are you complaining about it, it happens 
every time there's a conference. So, so why? So a, a pastor who stands in that conference, knowing all those people paid that money, you know, is he not receiving honor? People paid money to see him. And have you ever been to those conferences when the preacher sticks around after he preaches? Everybody runs up and does what? Selfie? Could you sign my Bible? Oh, have you ever seen that? That's insane. That's insane. I've watched that happen. The first time there was a, a Christian band in the 90s by the name of Mortal, and they were at a Christian bookstore in uh, Bellevue, Nebraska. And I got a chance to meet them, and we were talking, and uh, they, they had a rule. They don't sign autographs. They're like, we're, we're supposed to be pointing people to Christ. Why would I be signed? What is that? And I was like, and, and, and my joke was, well, pastors will do it. Pastors will do it. I've watched it happen at conferences. And I, it's just a shock. You have someone sign your Bible? Like, what in the world is that? Oh, I got a MacArthur Study Bible. Hey, can you sign my MacArthur Study Bible? Like, what in the world is happening? That's seeking what? Honor, is it not? All right. And guess what? I believe those men who do that, I believe it's wrong. But it doesn't call into question there. He just called into question their salvation. The entrance of faith into the heart has the effect of making the believer humble in the presence of God and men. See, if you're truly saved, you'll be humble. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that goes, yeah, that, yeah. There's no saved people. Are we any, or do we, any, uh, any of us ever truly humble? Okay. Uh, look at James 2.1 really quick. So I'm going to read James 2, 1 really quick. Who wants to read it? James 2, 1. James 2, 1. You got it? Read it, Bobby. It says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the respected person. And that's it, right? Now, what he, what he means here about the respected persons, James, preferring the rich... Because of their wealth to the poor means respecting a people's person. And that is something which faith will not tolerate. The believer views everyone not as far as his personality is concerned, uh, but in his relation to God. To him, a poor beggar, having been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, is worth as much as a king and an emperor. I believe that's the way it should be. They're claiming that's the way it will be. But that's an absolute joke. And that's even an absolute joke in the church. That's why as a pastor, I don't ever want to know who gives what. I don't ever know. I don't want to look. I don't pay any. I stay away from that. It's a million miles. I don't want to know if someone never has given a dime or if someone's given it. Because if I know that, what, do I, what will I have a tendency to do? I'm like, oh, man, Bojena dropped some serious coins. She dropped some money. And I know she doesn't like when I preach on that subject. What, what will I be tempted to do? 
I mean, it's true. I mean, and you say, that's horrifying. But it's reality. Why, why, why would I be tempted to not do that? Because the church has to have money to exist, okay, right? Okay. Oh, I can't afford to lose that family. I don't want to know that. I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want to know. Because that would seem to imply, well, okay, if I've got to make a choice here, I'm going to try to lose the one who doesn't give or doesn't show up all the time versus the one who died. And that cannot think that way. But it happens. I wish it didn't. But it happens. Such are the miracles which faith works in our heart. Please note, faith works a miracle in your heart. Please note, all of this is about what? Not the external but an internal, it does this. It, it's going to make a miracle. It's going to do a miracle. We're all miracles. Well, I wish Christians were all miracles, but considering how much sin has been committed by Christians in 2,000 years, right? Now, to represent, now, to represent justifying and saving faith as the inert mental act of regarding certain matters as true, which can coexist with mortal sin, means to treat faith as a work which man can produce in himself and preserve in himself even while sinning. True faith is a treasure which only the Holy Spirit can bestow. So what he's saying is, there's a man-made faith that you'll keep sinning. There's a faith God gives and you will stop sinning. But (laughs) you won't stop sinning. But you will. But, but, I mean, you won't. But if you don't, your faith is a ship. I mean, but it will. You see how... It's like, and it's almost like reading someone's schizophrenic, is it not? It's, it's, it's insane. But this is common in churches all over the place. All right? Uh, faith and a good conscience must be companions. A person that has no good conscience certainly is without faith. If you don't have a good conscience, you're without faith. Yeah, I know, I don't know. Okay. Um, of such people, the apostle says they have made a shipwreck of their faith. Even after our conversion, now here we go. Even after our conversion, we lack, we lack the true fear of God. And all our sins are great sins. Even the so-called sins of weakness of which the righteous cannot rid themselves. <laughs> Even after our conversion. Okay. Even after our conversion, we lack the true fear of God. And all our sins are great sins. Even the so-called sins of weakness, which the righteous cannot rid themselves, must not be regarded as paltry matter, although they do not extinguish faith. <laughs> Our faith is a sham. <laughs> I, look, okay, I want you to understand this. This... This is how Christians talk all the time. This is, this, is, this, this is what I've been trying to scream about forever, is that Christians constantly say this stuff, that you're a new creature in Christ. Everything is new. But you'll still sin. But, 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 if you sin too much, you were never saved. I, I know, and, and, and look, I, I want you to feel the same. I mean, I'm, I, I hope you feel as like, this just does not make any sense. 
But if you, if you try to explain this to Christians, they, 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 get self, they get defensive. I mean, you've had probably conversations. No, there must be a change. Okay, well, but, but it won't be perfect. So there's a change, but it's not a perfect change. But an imperfect change is enough to prove that I'm saved? Based off what? Some external acts that doesn't take into account? Oh, right. They're all big sins, exactly. There's no small sin. <laughs> I don't know. It makes no sense. Now, he goes on to the second part of the thesis, and I'm just going to try to read this because I think we've exhausted this about as much as we can, but here we go. The second part of the thesis states that the word of God and the law, that the word of God... Uh, and the law and gospel is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if to make a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and a reformation of his mode of living. All right, so let me just try to make it very clear. All right, so here's what he wants to do. He wants to make it very clear that this change will happen, but we cannot say someone is saved because of the change. But if you don't have the change, you're not saved. So it's just a circle. It's just a circle. So you, you get the second part of the thesis that he wants us to understand, right? Hey, you can be saved and continue to sin, but you can't say that that change makes you saved. But if you don't have the change... You're not saved. So in a roundabout way, he is saying that, but he's trying to correct it. Does everybody understand the circular reasoning there? Does everybody see how that works? And this, I guarantee you, every Christian you know talks in this circle all day long. We do not believe you're saved by works. But if you do this and this and this, you were never saved. And of course, then, if you continue the circle, what would that mean? You have to do these things in order to be saved. And they can't see that they don't, I don't know why they can't see that. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this. I'm not going to, we're not going to read every word of this one because this one is just a waste of time because he's already destroyed this whole concept, has he not? All right. The renewal of the heart, love, and the good works which faith produces are not the just, are not the justifying and saving element in a person's faith. In other words, it's not the change that saves you but if you don't have the change, you're not saved. And I'm just going to stop there. There's no, po- There's no point in reading it through because it's just, you ju- I'm just going to get more and more frustrated because now he's going to basically talk, no, we're saved by an imputed righteousness. We're saved by an imputed righteousness. You're saved by an imputed righteousness. But if you don't have the practical righteousness, <laughs> so immediately he's already thrown out the imputed righteousness in the first part. But now he's going to try to come back to focus on the imputed righteousness because we can't say that work saves us. But then he's saying that without the works, we're not saved, which means that they're required for salvation. I don't know how we can't just acknowledge this. And, and Sarah's at least heard this on Catholic radio. This is what Catholics don't understand. They're like, you people are just talking like, you guys don't have, y'all make no sense. You guys make absolutely no sense. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that was so... I was so challenging for me in the Catholic university. They were like, you believe what we believe. 
Can you do this and this and this and be saved? Well, no. Well, I thought you said you were saved by grace alone, faith, faith alone, apart from works. Well, yes. But if, we, if we're saved, we won't do that. Well, why? Well, don't you believe in imputed righteousness? No, I believe it. I mean, I'm like, stop talking to me. I've got this figured out. We don't believe in infused righteousness. We believe in imputed righteousness. But that imputed righteousness better produce an infused righteousness because without an infused righteousness, I won't be changed. And if I'm not changed, I was never saved. Okay, never mind. I get it. I'm Catholic. But then I had to like, I can't keep maintaining a system that's basically Catholicism in disguise. And whenever I say that to people, people just get, they roll their eyes and they think it's stupid. But it really, and what, it, it irritates me. It's like, how would you know? You've never taken a class at a Catholic university. Back off. I'm telling you that what we're teaching is Catholicism. Because it's imputed or infused. So, what is, so let's make it very clear. What does an imputed do? What does an imputed righteousness do? Changes my standing before God legally. What do we refer to this as? Okay, and what's the forensic justification, a legal declaration? Before God, I am legally declared to be what? Perfect, righteous, and holy. On the basis of what? His righteousness, which is accredited to me. It's not put in me. It's accredited to me. And so when I turn and walk away from that, I stay, I'm still, and when I say walk away from it, in other words, I'm just going to now go live my Christian life, right? So I've got it. I've been declared righteous. And when I start walking, what's going to show up in my life over and over and over? Unrighteousness. 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 Why is unrighteousness going to continue to show up in my life? Because that righteousness is where? Outside of me. It's not inside of me. God saved me because of, I couldn't do it. And what people want to believe is that God saved me so that I can do it. But that's not the way it works. He didn't save me so that I can. He saved me because I never will. Now, will I be made righteous? Perfectly righteous in glorification. In the meantime, what do we try to We live, we seek to live out practically what is true of us positionally, and it will be messy, and it will be ugly, and there will be ups and there will be downs. And why, what's, what's, what's the motivation for the, the practical change? I've changed my mind, so I'm trying to live out that change of mind. Gratitude for what God has done for me, and I will acknowledge the Holy Spirit is in me, but clearly the Holy Spirit is not going to get me to perfection and stop sinning because we know that's not the case. And we live in this in-between that's messed up. Right? I have been sanctified. I've been set apart all the way back in election. I've been set apart in conversion because he saved me. Right? I will be perfectly sanctified in glorification. And now that sanctification, whatever you want to call it, is really just the attempt to live out practically what is true positionally. And it's never going to be perfect or right or, or, or it's going to be ugly. It's never going to be anywhere close to what we want it to be. But we've got to start, th- we, we immediately want to throw people out of the kingdom of God because they don't do what we say. He wouldn't even, meet, he wouldn't even pass his own test, would he? Obviously not. 
Luther wouldn't have passed that test. Luther did a lot of unrighteous things even after conversion. You know, like kill the Jews and drown the Baptist. You know, burn down their synagogues. I mean, you're like, yeah, Luther was a great guy. The way he talked to people. Oh, arrogant and filled with anger. He was just as ungodly as he was after his conversion. And you say, well, that's horrible. It's true of all of us. The only thing we tend to do is commit different sins. Typically, that's really the change. It's kind of like someone from doing horrible drugs to now being addicted to nicotine. They're still addicted. It's changed the addiction. (laughs) We're still addicted to sin because it's where? In us. But they, even when they explain it, what did, at some point, what did he have to throw in? But, yeah. Why? Why did he have to throw that in, Sarah? That's the reality. That's the reality. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, the only thing I can say is we, everyone in this room, are aware that we all sin. And I'm aware that I continue to sin in thought, word, and deed every single day. And the only hope I can point someone to is not some hope of an internal change, but the hope of a perfect righteousness that's been imputed to us by faith. Let us cling to that and not look to our works for comfort and assurance, but look to the perfect work of your son. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,